Tell your story, build your brand. ArtMediaNorthwest.com. A R T M E D I A N W.com. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. It's yeah. great to be here. <laughs> uh, great to have you on the podcast. And uh, today I'd like to ask you a little bit about your experience with music and just sort of your life journey up until this point. And then uh, maybe we can start by talking about Portland Rock Voices or Rock Voices Portland. Either way. Yeah, that sounds great. I love to talk about this group. Nice. Um, rock Voices is a uh, non-audition community rock chorus. Uh, if you can sing in the shower, you can sing with our choir. Um, it's all about the fun of singing with people, um, singing songs we know and love from over the decades and uh, we don't audition for membership in the choir, but if you want to audition for a solo, you might find yourself singing in a performance with a live rock band, um, being the rock star for a day. <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty exciting thing. Yeah, it's a blast. I got the privilege to play with your group the last concert, and yeah. uh, it was fantastic. It was know? fantastic. Yeah, sold out crowd and everything. So. That's right. Yeah, yeah. A lot, of, a lot of good energy. Yeah, we sold that concert out. We oversold it by 50. We had to set up chairs in the lobby. Wow. And... Uh, <laughs> So we moved to a venue that's almost twice the size. We're going to be at the Lake Oswego High School Auditorium on May 5th. Excellent. And uh, we're going to try to sell out 600 seats. Fantastic. So, yeah. Well, I'll have to make sure to air this before May 5th so that people can find out about it ahead of time. Awesome. I love that. Yeah. Can you tell us about some of the different challenges you've dealt with uh, over the last decade? Yeah. Um, Rock Voices uh, has kind of been an answer to a long struggle I've had over the last 10 years. In fact, it was almost exactly 10 years ago that uh, I discovered that I had a brain tumor. Um, it was, I guess, there from my teen years. And one night, uh, it was April 11th uh, of 2009, um, I had a grand mal seizure. And they rushed me to the hospital. And uh, I woke up the next morning, uh, and there were doctors and my whole family was there and they told me I had a golf ball sized tumor. Um, so that was a huge shocker for everybody. And I immediately felt like I was on this kind of autopilot roller coaster sort of thing where, you know, I didn't have any control what was happening and I just had to go along with the flow and it was just really surreal Yeah, uh, and very scary, scary for my family. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So that really threw me for a loop. Can you tell us about your family that was there at, uh, during that time? Sure. Yeah, well, I have three daughters. Um, they were all elementary school age at the time. Um, and uh, they, along with my wife, you know, it, it was just, it threw our whole world upside down and um, put everybody into this kind of alternate reality. My wife instantly became this full-time caregiver, um, and she had to juggle, you know, the kids uh, with taking care of me. Uh, fortunately, my parents live out here in Oregon. Uh, we all came from Massachusetts originally. Okay. Um, but we've been out here for over 20 years, uh, and some of my extended family moved out here as well. So uh, we had extended family and a really great support network of church friends and musician friends um, who were able to kind of help my family and, and support us while we went through that. Wow, that's great. How long did that process take? What what did that look like? Well, the actual treatment process... Um, Within three days of the uh, seizure, I was having a surgery. And they opened my head up, and they took all the all the tumor out, um, sent it in for pathology, and uh, it was malignant, but it was very kind of a rare thing. It's called an angiocentric glioma, 
Um, it's not the kind of thing that's you know, instantly fatal or where you're on the clock all of a sudden. Um, like, you know, I've met a few people through that process uh, that had the glioblastoma, and those are the ones that, you know, they'll take somebody down really aggressive. six months to a year from discovery. Oof. Really aggressive. So I was very fortunate. Um, you know, it was, it was rare, and that made it hard to diagnose and say what the prognosis looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had uh, the surgery to remove the tumor, and then I had six weeks of radiation therapy. Um, and within a couple months after that, I was back at work. Wow. So, yeah, the recovery medically uh, was miraculous and went very well. Now, from that point on, was that something where they have to kind of keep an eye on things, or is it has uh, because I had interviewed another person that's a cancer survivor as well, and she had said that it's it's a new normal. You, I, I don't know if it's the same for you. Yeah, um, it is. It is. Um, it's been ten years, mm-hmm. and so I'm at the point now where I don't even think about it most days. Good. Um, it's part of who I am because of the experience I went through and how my life has changed since. Yeah. But it's not a part of who I am day to day in the way I have to act and handle myself. And so uh, that 10 years, they did MRIs first every six months and then every year. And I had my last 10 year MRI last month. And so it's official that I'm in remission and it's been 10 years. So that's kind of a milestone for a cancer patient. Yeah. Um, So I'm very happy about that. Uh, when I think about it, there's definitely still some anxiety, not knowing, you know, if or when it, mm-hmm. it will ever return. And the fact that it was kind of a rare uh, sort of tumor, um, there's not enough data on how concerned I should be about that. Okay. Um, so I would like to continue having MRIs. Yeah. My doctor's going to order it. We'll see what the insurance company says. Okay. Okay. Uh, but I definitely, you know, when I think about it, I, I want to know that yeah. it's still looking good. Well, that peace of mind is worth it, you know. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Yep. Well, that is a good story. Yeah. <laughs> I like. Ultimately, it yes. Is. Uh, you know, it uh, didn't start out well, but it ended up well. It sure did. And a lot of the changes that came from going through the process of dealing with the emotional challenges uh, and mental challenges, um, I'm at a place right now where I wouldn't be, and I'm thankful for it. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So how have things been going over recent years uh, since, let's talk about the Portland Rock Voices. Uh, when did you start that project? Well, um, that project was started by a college friend of mine named Tony Lechner. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went to the University of Massachusetts together, and uh, he and I sang in a little six-man acapella group nice. called the Acapellas. <laughs> <laughs> yep, so corny. Um, but it was, a, it was a great experience, and we were kind of a hit on campus, yeah. you know. Um, and Tony, um, he, when he got his music degree, uh, he went into teaching, mm-hmm. uh, private lessons as well as at a small school, uh, in Western Massachusetts, um, and gigging and just everything that musicians try to do to make a full-time go of it. Yeah. Um, I was often envious of him as well as a couple college buddies of mine, uh, one of whom is my brother-in-law, uh, who did music full-time. Um, I did not do that. Uh, I went into IT. Yeah. Um, so I started on a help desk like 20 years ago, um, and now I'm the director of an IT department. Okay. Um, and uh, I, I love that work, um, but obviously it's not my passion because I'm so excited to talk about <laughs> rock voices and my musical pursuits. Um, so Tony started something called the Valley Rock Choir in the uh, 
in the Connecticut River Valley in Western Massachusetts, um, and it became a pretty popular choir. Um, they ultimately kind of morphed into doing all rock songs, mm-hmm. and so they renamed it to Rock Voices. It grew, and it was so successful that it got over 100 singers in pretty short order, and he started another choir in the next town over, which is also over 100 singers now. Wow. Um, so those two choirs, uh, they put on their concerts. They sell out you know, 500, I think it's actually a 1,000-seat auditorium. Man. Three times a year. And uh, they pull from their, I think currently it's like 275 singers, um, and they kind of sign up for which concerts they want to do. And he's got to manage how many people he can fit on the stage per concert. It's, it's pretty exciting. Um, that model was so successful that he started another choir in Brattleboro, Vermont, and he quit all of his other gigs, and he started doing this choir full-time. Wow. Yep. It grew and grew to where he knew he could support additional choirs, but he couldn't do them himself. So he started locating other directors around New England um, to do that. And now I think he has eight directors, um, and they have choirs in uh, two choirs in New York State. Actually, now it's four. Just this season, he started two more in New York. Um, We've got choirs in Connecticut, uh, New Hampshire, Vermont. Yeah, I think that's all the states back east. And then since I knew him and he had been kind of saying, hey, you need to start a choir out in Portland. He's been saying that to me for years and I never really took it seriously. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always wanted to and I knew I'd love it, but I didn't really put the energy into it because I had a full-time job and had three kids we were raising. And, right. Um, you know, they're, one of them is grown now and two of them are teenagers and they're doing well. So it does, it's not as demanding. So finally I said yes. Uh, and the biggest part of why I said yes is because I identified this huge hole mm-hmm. that had formed since my cancer diagnosis. Okay. Yeah. The best thing that happened about, I guess it was seven years after my cancer diagnosis and treatment, um, the people in my life uh, finally convinced me that I needed to see a therapist um, because I went into this depression. Yeah. Um, even though the treatment went really well, um, the whole thing really threw me for a loop uh, mentally and emotionally. So I had never dealt with depression in my life. But after cancer, um, I was a person of faith, mm-hmm. um, very, very involved in the church. I've been a worship leader for many years. Um, you know, I started out in uh, probably junior high, high school. Uh, leading, you know, youth singing and volunteering for being a camp counselor and all that. So my faith was a pretty core part of who I was. Yeah. And a very core part of all the community that we had in our lives. And as an adult, uh, I definitely struggled with um, the tenets of the Christian faith and, you know, how it, how it related to me. And um, I kind of, with years and experience, uh, came to understand that the connection that I was supposed to have with God wasn't what it was in reality. So I started wrestling with that probably before the cancer diagnosis, certainly before the cancer diagnosis. Uh, And when I was diagnosed and going through treatment, um, my whole view changed. I had been, you know, I I mentioned I had been a worship leader and uh, it it was kind of sad, but it's just the way it was that... During the treatment, you know, there were prayer gatherings for me. You know, people came and prayed with me. We had a big prayer service before my surgery. Like, I think it was 80 people show up, wow. you know, during a weekday um, to come and pray for me before going into surgery. That kind of love is very moving and very touching. Um, and it's, you know, due to the just the connections that my wife and I have formed um, over the years, 
but I was feeling kind of removed from the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if part of it was just the major diagnosis and the scare of having a brain tumor put my head in a different place, but I just didn't experience those those services and what those people were doing for me uh, the way I felt like I should have. I was I felt kind of removed from the whole thing, and I realized that I didn't believe the premise on which all of the the faith and prayer was based. Mm. And it hit me pretty hard that I hadn't believed it for a long time, even though I was playing the role. So after my surgery, during the recovery period, during radiation, you had a lot of downtime yeah. where I was home, um, just healing, trying to eat healthy and uh, keep my mind occupied, but rest, because that's what I needed most. But it became pretty painfully obvious to me that this foundation that I had had for my whole childhood and young adulthood um, was not something that I believed in anymore. And I realized that there was an emptiness since it felt like the community and music uh, and everything that I kind of used as my identity uh, was not something that I was really committed to and tied to and um, didn't really feel or want as part of my identity anymore just because of this realization that my real thinking and real existence was not as inextricably linked to the faith story sure as I thought it was um, and at that point I just really vividly recall seeing my whole ministry like from the side like you're looking at a Hollywood set mm-hmm. and all of the things that I had been standing in front of and presenting myself and singing worship songs and leading people at church I could see the two by fours behind kind mm. of holding that all up Wow, and I realized that that's that's what it is to me. And I was I was great, you know, performing on that stage. And you know, my my heart was in it, and I know that I did a good thing in leading people to connect with a God that they believe is, and I believed too, is what it's all about. And that that God, and pretty much every other God in our world. Uh, represents a love that is real. The love, the community, the connections, the caring, all of that is real, and the no music, matter what. The music is part of that. I Absolutely. Think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the music moves you, and uh, it brings you to places that you couldn't get without mm-hmm. that layer um, connecting with your heart and your mind. Yeah. Uh, so I felt good about that. I still feel good about that, because sure. I know it brought a lot of people to at least a community and a love that people need in their lives. That's well put. And I still feel good about that. That community and that love that I need too wasn't going to come from that, from the church experience anymore because I felt like there was a great hypocrisy when I would go back and, you know, sometimes I would substitute for friends of mine sure. uh, who needed a keyboard player or needed a worship leader. And when I did that, I just felt like a big hypocrite because I was still saying the same words. I was still doing the same things, but I just, my heart wasn't in them anymore. Right. So I realized I had to stop doing that. That's good to be authentic. Yeah. And in order to be authentic anymore, I needed to find a new community, a new place to share my talents and share myself and find that community and experience that love 
that wasn't coming from the faith community for me anymore because I had removed myself from it. Yeah. So um, how about your uh, the training in music? Did you take piano lessons? Did you study music in school? Were you a music minor, music major? I was a music major in school. Yeah. Um, but I came to love music, you know, as most music majors in school do, uh, many, many years earlier. Um, at, from my childhood, I would always, you know, f- line up the jars and fill them with the right amounts of water for the right pitches and tap on them with chopsticks and make my own piano. We had a player piano in my house, which was always fun. I took piano lessons uh, probably when I was like nine and ten years old, but I literally fired my piano teacher. <laughs> I would sit at the piano working on the music. She would sit kind of behind me to the side over my shoulder. She literally had a three-foot stick that she would use to point at the notes. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was not the most fun thing. It sounds a little intimidating. And when when Empire Strikes Back came out, (laughs) I wanted to play the Imperial March. Yeah. And I was ready. And I could plunk it out at home, but she wasn't open to teaching me that music. Uh, yeah. Yeah, she didn't want to teach me the music I wanted to play. So my mom tells the story that uh, she was sitting at the curb outside this woman's house while I was taking piano lessons like she had for months and months, probably years. And I came out one day, and I just got in the car, and I didn't say anything. And it was you know, not time to end the lesson yet. And she said, what happened? And I told her, she won't let me play the music I want to play. So you just walked out? I said, I fired her. <laughs> so apparently I had told her that she's fired uh, because she wouldn't let me play the music I wanted to play. So, I mean, that was a pretty bold move. That is. <laughs> so what instruments have you played? So we talked about piano, obviously voice. Yep, that was my major, was vocal performance. Yeah. Uh, so I've been in lots of choirs and done you know, lots of solo and, and group singing. Um I played the trumpet and French horn and trombone throughout high school. Uh, you know, I never mastered any any of them. Well, French um, horn is hard to master. <laughs> yep. A, it's all about instrument. the offbeats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I played uh, guitar all through high school and college and well into my adulthood leading camps. Uh, so, yeah, I was definitely a, always a campfire guy, and I was really into all the Christian rock music mm-hmm. um, from the late 80s all the way up through, well, I guess it was about 2009. So Striper and Petra and... <laughs> yep, Stephen and all the lighter stuff, too. The lighter stuff, too, you know, yeah. Huge fan of Stephen Curtis Chapman, yeah. Jars of Clay. Michael W. Smith. Yep. Amy Grant. Exactly, yeah. I went to lots of those uh, music festivals, the Christian music festivals. Cool. An interesting part of having spent so much time and energy on the Christian music of the 90s and, and so forth um, is that I really missed out on a lot of the popular music and the rock music. There was a lot of good stuff. Yeah, there um, was. When and the 90s came, I hated it because it killed everything I identified with. Yeah. <laughs> Just like Nirvana instead of Van Halen, like that's not a guitar <laughs> solo. I mean, what? come on, you're playing the melody. Van but, Halen uh, <laughs> wins for me too. <laughs> but I, I, it really grew on me, you know, and now I love probably love the 90s stuff more than the 80s stuff. I look mm-hmm. at the 80s stuff as a little more ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, well, I've, I've always been an 80s guy, you know, yeah. 80s top 40 as yeah. well as 80s oh rock. Gosh. Um but the lots of the songs that the choir talks about, lots of songs we do in the choir, mm-hmm. weren't in my you know repertoire. Oh, funny! Because <laughs> I was so focused on the Christian music. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, that Aretha Franklin tribute really like uh, brought tears to my eyes. I mean, that was amazing. That yeah. was a cool thing. It was pretty pretty great. Um, Tony had one Aretha song on the program for that concert. Uh-huh. Then when she passed away, he decided, okay, we need to blow this up and we yeah. need to make this a big big number. Well, it was well done. It was, Thank you. Yeah, it was put together really well. So did the place and time you grew up, the time period, and mentors have an impact on the way you learned? I had a couple really good music teachers in the public school system in my really small town. Um, our town was so small. I had, I was sixth in my graduating class and most people, when they say that, that's a major accomplishment, but I only had 38 students in my class. (laughs) So being sixth wasn't all the hard work that you might think. It's still pretty good though. (laughs) I'm no genius. (laughs) Anyway, for a small cow town, um, we really had some pretty great focus on the arts. Um, Eddie Foreman was my high school music teacher, and he was definitely the most formative figure in my musical development. Um, you know, he taught me a few of those instruments that I was talking about. Um, he put me in positions where he needed a player mm-hmm. and expected and, and prepared me to come up to speed. Um, and then one of the biggest things was, you know, as a as a musician in a cow town surrounded by people who are in more into trucks and guns and sports. Um, I was definitely kind of an outsider. Sure. Um, my friends were the girls in the class. Okay. Um, and so I had a lot of, uh, unrequited crushes <laughs> on my friends. Um, cause I was hanging out with the girls all the time. And if, uh, if I was feeling like not being around my male peers at lunch hour or something, I would just go in the music room and, you know, he, he let me have access to the music room 24 seven. And I would go in there and, you know, play Elton John or Billy Joel and uh, the girls would gather around. And <laughs> so that was that was pretty thrilling Definitely. Uh, at that age. And I wrote a Christmas song one year and uh, Mr. Foreman put it on the concert program. So I sang a solo at the Christmas concert, this original song I'd written. Wow. Um, that really bolstered my confidence. I bet. Um, he yeah. encouraged me to make a recording, which I did. Um, and to this day, they still play it on the local radio station in Western Massachusetts. Oh uh, wow! At Christmas time, man. Yeah, it's probably the number one played Christmas song there. It's like <laughs> Bing Crosby and Mark Barstow. Was... As if. Yeah. Now, I'm, my grandma would call and request it all the okay. time. So. so you may be right; it <laughs> might be the most played, um, and I'm sure it's not anymore because she passed a few years ago. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, what, are, in your opinion, what are some of the best ways people can cultivate the skills that you've learned? Well. I think like with anything that you're interested in doing, um, you have to do it. I mean, you have to pursue it. You know, I don't have any anything uh, revolutionary to say about that except, you know, just follow your heart. Yeah. Um, like that's revolutionary. Um, all I did was, I mean, I, I knew from a very young age that I was into music. Um, my family supported my, you know, putting time and energy into it. Um, she, my mom drove me to all those, all those lessons that I ultimately fired my teacher from, <laughs> you know, uh, they, uh, supported my silly composition, uh, pursuits in like middle school. Um, yeah. So just do it. Yeah. You know, um, and hopefully you don't have to do it alone. Um, because doing, doing artistic pursuits in community, I think has a particular power. I mean, obviously there are, there are things like, you know, painting or um, meditation, you know, things that are by design 
typically um, more effective as an individual. But as a social person and as an outgoing person, um, I was so lucky that I had my church youth group to sing along with. Um, they, they gifted me a guitar in high school. Nice. Uh, you know, I was, I was playing on a beater, and uh, my youth leader and uh, my fellow youth group members, they all pitched in, and they got me a guitar for my graduation one year. So having the support of people who love you um, and encourage you in whatever you're trying to pursue, uh, that was huge for me. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's a blessing. That's a good thing. For sure. To have. How should people find their passion or start their creative life if they don't feel like they have a direction? Yeah. Again, that's the kind of thing that can't really happen in a vacuum necessarily. I mean, I think people are probably particularly gifted if they're able to discover and nurture a creative pursuit on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, some people, I think, have have it so innately uh, in them that they're going to, it's going to come out of them no matter what the environment is. But when you, when you identify something that you, that brings you joy, mm-hmm. um, especially a creative pursuit that creates beauty, um, I would say if you start to identify something like that in your life, find other people who feel the same way and do the same thing because um, it's going to make you better at it um, and it will give you more and more opportunity to develop it, share it, grow it exponentially, um, You know, plug into some sort of organized group that gives you a forum to share what you're creating. Okay. Uh, that's, that's, that's the biggest good. thing I found. So how has technology changed art, photography, creative arts in general? I would say that I have a love-hate relationship with technology. <laughs> You're an IT guy, so yeah, that's understandable. Exactly. Um, if I wasn't working in technology uh, full-time for so many years, uh, I might feel differently about it. Mm-hmm. And I know it doesn't go to the uh, how, how it affects creative pursuits directly, but I used to always be the gadget guy. You know, I would get the latest, greatest, you know, MIDI, you know, controller, and um, I would always uh, seek out the gadgets, um, both for music as well as for just in general. Um, and the longer I worked in technology, uh, the less I became enamored with the technology that we have access to. Um, and now it's <laughs> so much of it is just kind of a pain in the butt. Yeah. Um, but as far as how it's impacted creativity uh, and artistic pursuits, yeah, I'll never forget getting my first digital camera. It coincided with the birth of our oldest child. Mm. Um, so I've got hundreds and hundreds of pictures of me showing my first digital camera to others. Like <laughs> I took selfies of me and a hundred people probably uh, over the first month of me saying, "Hey, check this out!" Holding up the camera, them seeing themselves on the screen for the first time in their lives, and that weird look that you get on your face right. when you're fascinated, <laughs> happy, and concerned all at once. Yeah, like what is this? So I've got a, a hilarious series of photos. Digital photography is probably the one that's impacted me most. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm sure that's not a unique thing. Many, many people could say um, just how great it is to be able to take as many pictures as you want without having to pay for them. That's my passion um, right now. Yeah. And I'm taking uh, sometimes, you know, sometimes well over a thousand photos a week, you know, or even in a day or two. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's. <laughs> and then managing storage becomes the problem. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which is another pain in the butt technology. Google concern. Photos right now is what I'm using. I just upload them to that. Musically. Um, 
lots of the most rewarding experiences I had within a certain period of my life were due to the fact that I was able to totally recreate a song um, to a pretty exacting degree of, of specification with a sequencer and a synthesizer. Um, you know, I, I remember uh, there was one vacation and I didn't have anything going on uh, back in my early 20s. And uh, I completely recreated Sting's song, The Russians. Oh, wow. Um, on a, a what was it, an 8088 PC with the MIDI interface, and uh, I think it was a Yamaha DX7. Um, and it was so rewarding to just be able to put the effort into learning and then recreating all the nuances in a, a produced studio recording like that. Yeah. Uh, that was a ton of fun. That's awesome. And also, back in high school, you know, I had a little Casio keyboard uh, with a sequencer on it. Um, I think the sequence record button was right next to the bossa nova button. <laughs> so occasionally you would rec- yeah. <laughs> go into a bossa nova beat. Yeah, I, I super glued mine uh, on my on my keyboard because I kept hitting it when I was trying to compose for my theory classes yep. and stuff like yep. that. And it would just start this random, like, obnoxious beat going. I'm like, oh, my God. Multi-track recording is another one. Just having a, an analog multi-track recorder. Uh, when I was in my college composition classes and, you know, being able to produce, you know, four part, uh, original choral arrangements and being able to sing all the parts myself and wow. <laughs> you know, submit that to the professor, you know, those kinds of things, I guess I would say, uh, I love the way technology makes it possible for a creative vision to become a reality more quickly and simply. Yeah. I think that's great. That's huge. Yeah. What are some challenges that you faced during your study or training in music? I think the biggest challenge that I faced during my training in music was myself because I th- I'm sort of uh, an impatient learner. I want to just do instead of take the time to really learn it. Case in point, the piano teacher, you know, right? who knows how much better a pianist I would be uh, if I had stayed with her. Um, you don't know. Um, I should have gone out and I should have asked my parents, can I get another teacher? Right. But instead, I think they just probably gave up on that endeavor and I didn't ask for that. Right. I was only 10, so what did I know? But uh, instead, you know, I started playing along with the radio. Yeah. I would record my favorite songs on cassette, sit down at the player piano and plunk them out until I could play right along with Billy Joel and sing at the top of my lungs. Nice. Um, That led me to becoming the musician I am today. And honestly... The musician I am today is a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. Um, I cannot sit down in front of a piece of sheet music and play the accompaniment. I have to really, really work on it. Mm-hmm. And if there, are, if there are chord letters written over the top of the staff, you know, I'm very thankful because yeah. that's what I can do. <laughs> right. You know, I, can, I can sit down and play a, a fake book chart, yeah. but I can't sit down and play a piece of sheet music, even a hymn or something simple. My wife can do that. Mm. You know, uh, she's she's a pianist and organist. She's been leading uh, church choirs since she was thirteen. Oh wow! Um, and th- the biggest reason I think for that is that she can sit down and she can play everything that needs to be played when it needs to be played. Yeah, I can't do that. It's a different skill. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, I mean, talk to you know, how do you get a guitar player to turn down? You put sheet music in front of him. You know, that's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's 
Yeah, because, you know, most guitarists, you know, I studied classical for about seven years, but, you know, if I have the choice of reading music or not, I'm going to not read the music. If I need to memorize something, I'm not going to sheet music to do it. I'm going to watch a YouTube video where I can play through the song twice and I have it memorized. Absolutely. You know, most of the time. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. And it's a a bit of a setback for me as a choir director. Mm -hmm. Um, With Rock Voices, you know, I can't play all four parts concurrently. Right. Unless I practice it. Mm. Um, so that's one of the other reasons I'm really thankful for my wife. She sure. sings in the choir, but during our you know first several weeks of a season, she's the one setting up the piano, playing mm-hmm. out the parts. Nice. Um, it's extremely helpful. Yeah, definitely. But if you need to play like the alto part or whatever, if there's yeah, a four part. Yeah, I can play part, a single part. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I can even play two parts at a time if, if sure. it's not a bad key. <laughs> So what is your day job, and how did you develop the skills needed for that? Well, I've always been interested in technology. Um, you know, I remember in junior high, you know, I wrote a, a computer program in BASIC uh, to for my parents for their anniversary, you know, and I had the letters of each person in the wedding party at the top of the screen and some lines for the aisle and then I had a M for mom and a D for dad you know and they walked it down the aisle so that's kind of cool it's very thoughtful <laughs> gift actually yeah uh, it was uh on the, on our PC junior uh-huh um yeah so I always had fun um with computers um I remember I volunteered to help a elementary school computer day camp uh during the summer um so the computers have always come pretty naturally to me. Um, and at one point, we had just moved to Portland. Um, I had a job selling toner cartridges and cleaning printers, um, and I wasn't really into that. So after a couple of years of that, I decided I was going to try a go at being a full-time professional vocalist. <laughs> <laughs> Young and naive. Um, I printed up some business cards and a resume, and I started talking to funeral homes, wedding coordinators, you know, and I, I was going to be the I was going to be the church service singer. There you go. Um, you know that that didn't really pan out as a full time gig. Yeah, that's not a not a easy business plan I was to pretty sell. Naive. That's no. okay. I, I get it. You know, I I had I had gigs here and there, um, but I was looking for a full time job. I found an ad in the paper for a half time assistant to a systems administrator at a consulting firm. So I wrote a great cover letter. It basically said, uh, sick of doing this, 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 and this. I'm your man. I can help you out. You don't have to worry about this stuff anymore. That's pretty much what I said. Um, so he interviewed me. I started a couple weeks later, uh, and I think it was about six months until I was full-time. Um, and that was the beginning of a 20-year career uh, in IT support and services. Wow. Um, yeah. So and it really thrilled me for a really long time. Yeah. Um, and as technology evolved and it became harder to stay current, and I got more and more into management and less in the hands-on technology, um, you know, my love of tech just kind of like normalized into the everyday grind that most of us find uh, our jobs are if it's not what we're passionate about uh, around you know age forty probably. Yeah. Um, so that's what that's what technology is for me now. And that's my day job. Uh, and I work for a company that I love with a lot of fantastic people, uh, that I love taking care of and helping and supporting, um, in an industry. Uh, it's, it's the accounting industry. 
um, which is very challenging as far as software goes. Uh, so there are lots of challenges still. Definitely. And lots of change happening in that industry and in the technology industry that's fun to you know usher a company through. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like that a lot. Yeah. Still it makes me happy. Well, um, I'm sure people appreciate you, you know, the fact that you're able to kind of help solve their problems that they're running into, you know. Yeah, definitely. So they can do their work. Definitely. And so, that's where the thrill is yeah, in, in helping people. How have you learned to overcome adversity? Get a therapist. <laughs> um, I'm serious. Uh, if you are experiencing adversity that is really kind of rattling your core, um, you know, for me it was it was the cancer, the realization about my faith, and just that whole period, um, and someone I know and love and trust who had experience with a counselor recommended this specific counselor to me um, because she thought it would help me get unstuck. Mm-hmm. And with that particular type of adversity, I think that's what you got to do. I think there are things happening in our heads that we cannot unravel by ourselves. Um, I think there are simple things that we know about ourselves and about our passions and about what makes us most satisfied and most actualized um, that we can't access until we break through some of the crap that's standing in the way. Yeah. And my counselor... She helped me within you know, less than two years not only discover and really basically remember that I'm a musician and that's what I need to be doing. And I'm a community leader and I need to be leading a community. Um, and just identifying the gaps and the obstacles that were in my own mind around who I was, what I was capable of, and what would bring me joy and put me back on a, a solid, positive path in my life, that's what it took for me to realize, okay, I need to say yes to Tony <laughs> and yeah. start this choir. Well, it's fortuitous that all of those aspects of who you are, sort of like that sort of stopped, you know, those parts of you sort of stopped for a while. It was jarring. And then you found this thing. Mm-hmm sort of fell into it, but it was, it was given to you by your friend. Yep. Um, and, and it sort of fit like you, you Yeah. it's just like, it's like, there's a, there's this one specific need in the Portland Metro area and there's one person that can do it. We found him. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) That's cool. Well, I'm not egotistical enough to think that I'm the only person who could feel that need, but it definitely lined up. You do it well though. Yeah. Thank you, Danny. Yeah. 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 Um, thanks. Yeah. So how important is music to film and video storytelling? I think music uh, has the power to really transform and level up um, the, the experience of creative media of any other kind. Yeah. Um, I think that film or visual storytelling without music uh, certainly can be just as powerful as with music if it's strong enough on its own. Um, I think it's very powerful sometimes when a film doesn't use music or at least in key parts it doesn't. And I think that um, American media production in particular, I'm not versed enough in you know global media production to, to say this with confidence, but I really feel like a lot of the programming and film that we watch in this country allows the music 
to direct our emotions more than it maybe should. Okay. I think a story that doesn't stand on its own merits, a, a film production that doesn't stand on its own film production merits, mm-hmm. its visual aspects, can be helped along by music. Um, when there's a story that's powerful enough on its own without music to really move us and touch us, and you add the right music, that is just mind-blowing. Yeah. And that's where... It's a game-changer. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's where the power of music brought to you a story really takes it to the next level. I th- the first thing I think of as you asked me this, Interstellar. Have you mm. seen Interstellar? I don't know that I have. got to check that movie out. Yeah. It's an amazing story told in an amazing manner. And the soundtrack takes it over the top in such a unique way. It's by Hans Zimmer. Okay, yeah. It's a 100% pipe organ. Oh, wow. Who would have thought, right? But it's amazing. Yeah, pipe organ's incredible if you're in the right room. <laughs> yep, yeah. They call it the king of instruments, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's amazing what, what he does with that thing. I also watched a, a video documentary on the making of that soundtrack. Wow. Fascinating. I, I strongly recommend, yeah. recommend checking it out. And then, you know, you've got a movie like Guardians of the Galaxy or something, and they just take this 70s and early 80s (laughs) music that just is all this feel-good stuff and some of that moody stuff, Uh um, and they just put that behind the whole thing, um, especially with the clever device of encapsulating it in a mixtape that his mom gave him (laughs) um, that he hangs on to for decades. Um, You know, that's not music crafted for a film. That's just a filmmaker choosing all the right music. Yeah. Well, um, Forrest Gump soundtrack was like absolutely, that too. Yeah, yeah. Big yeah. chill, you know. Yeah, yeah. Right. How have you developed the ability to get uh, sometimes a hundred people or more to give you their full attention? Um, persistence. Um, sometimes <laughs> you just have to pretend they're not all talking over you and just start talking anyway. Um, I have a microphone. I wear a headset microphone at rehearsals. Okay. There you go. Um, and I've got a mic, and they don't. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, also, um, my experience as a youth leader mm-hmm. uh, in the church, you know, dozens of youth uh, most of the time, and sometimes 500 youth, you know, at a, at a big rally. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've got some experience with that. <laughs> <laughs> it also helps to have a musical instrument handy. Yeah. Like sometimes when we're coming back from a break and everybody's yakking and I need to get to work on some music, mm-hmm. I'll just pound on the piano, play a little fanfare yeah. on the piano or whatever. It's like dimming the lights, the equivalent of that or something, right? Yeah. yeah. Is it difficult to run a choir and remain relatively light and friendly? If you're a light and friendly person, mm-hmm. um, I think being genuine allows you to be the leader you want to be. Okay. Um, I have not found at all that it's difficult to you know, wrangle people uh, into paying attention or learning their parts or working hard on, on, a, on learning a part and still just be myself. Um, my wife and I, uh, you know, she is, she's one of my secret weapons, probably my best secret weapon, because uh, she's got this huge heart and she's so warm and loving with everybody. Um, so having her alongside at this at, at every every turn, every event, allowing she's she's kind of like the softer side. Mm-hmm. She makes everybody feel loved. <laughs> <laughs> um, and mine, I'm kind of the the goofball with the shtick, um, <laughs> keeping the keeping people entertained. <laughs> so we 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 can both just be genuine and be ourselves, um, and you know 
living out loud, being ourselves, and uh, people resonate with it. Yeah. So yeah, that's good. Um, you don't have to be a you don't have to be cracking a whip and be a taskmaster in order to be a choir director. That's good to know. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, there has to be an element of that. Yeah, but that doesn't have sometimes. to be your primary personality right. trait. You got to just pull that card out when you need it, right? Exactly. Okay. How well does the system work for people and for musicians, creative artists? Well, there are lots of systems you could be. I mean, are you talking about the way our society yeah. handles the arts? Yes. Yeah. Again, I got lucky back in, in school um, that I had the, some amazing music teachers in that little town. Um, but in general, there's the old you know, sports versus arts, uh, who gets the budget kind of question. And I think it's very sad um, that what I really think is a more potent, uh, significant, and meaningful thing, the arts, be it music or visual arts, um, is deprioritized. Uh, because I think, uh, I mean, there is a lot of community that springs up around athletics for sure. Yeah. Um, I was never the athlete and always the musician. Um, but I think that we're neglecting a more subtle and significant and meaningful part of ourselves if we don't support the arts just as strongly as we support sports um, or even academics. So I think for a lot of our society, the power of the arts is so subtle um, it's not as powerful as a cheering stadium or as powerful as you know the crack of a bat or a goal. Um, those things bring about um, you know really powerful, immediate rush and joy and there's community in that. Um, you know uh, timber nation, you know uh, that's meaningful stuff and that's real stuff. you know people you know build the, some of the most meaningful community in their lives around that kind of thing. Um, and that's why I think it's sad that the more subtle uh, experience that we have internally, and especially when it's shared among other people, either in the audience or on the stage, that are experiencing a significant and meaningful internal uh, joy um, or sadness, you know, whatever it is that the art moves us toward in that particular case, for that to translate into it getting underfunded is very sad. Yeah. You know, just because it's not out there in your face broadcast nationwide on a Sunday in January uh, doesn't mean that it's any less significant or meaningful or powerful. And I think that the arts, you know, can be far more transformative and bring about growth that is far more significant to individuals and to the world mm -hmm. than sports can. So, as when you ask me how how does the system handle it, uh, it's it's broken, just yeah. on that very fundamental level, um, and I also think that, you know, we're discovering how broken the education system is on a whole, the public education system. Not just because it deprioritizes uh, the creative pursuits that we want our children to discover, um, but also because even the academics um, have more and more uh, insignificance mm -hmm. in the real lives of people who graduate or don't graduate. So I really think it all needs to be it needs to be rethought. 
Um, and honestly, I'm pretty skeptical about our capability of doing that on a national scale anymore. It's such a big ship to turn. You yeah, know? it is a big it, ship to turn. Yeah. And I think, uh, sadly, uh, more and more of our population doesn't even know there's a ship. Mm. Yeah. They're consciously oblivious to it, or they're just choosing not to look into it at all? Um, you know, this is, this is the big divide that's so that's so brightly lit by the spotlights uh, of, of our current time and our thinking and our um, politics. And uh, it's sad, but I really believe that um, in order to make grand systemic change that I believe needs to be made and that a lot of people believe needs to be made, we need to be in a, a more intelligent place. Um, the ability to have honest and open, respectful discourse between people of differing views uh, has dissolved to a degree where it makes me skeptical that our system, the way it's designed, the way it was designed by the founding fathers, um, will work much anymore. Mm. Um, the people who are in power, um, both in the White House, but also in the houses, um, in Congress, the impasse that we're at seems to be so deeply rooted in people's ability to think one way or, the, or another way. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of people have just kind of given up, um, including elected officials. No, I can't say that. I don't want to include, accuse our elected officials of giving up. I don't think anybody's given up. I think that people's thinking has narrowed into these well-defined channels mm -hmm. with lines that are hard to cross now. Yeah, these little boxes, and you try to put people in boxes, and then they they have an us and them mentality. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and it's sad. So I think the system is definitely broken, and it's uh, it's sad for the arts. Uh, and it's sad for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, something big has to change uh, in order for people to open up again, to be intelligently listening and discussing ideas and changes, uh, and even more so to actually implement them. So, I mean, what I'm hoping for <laughs> is like a new renaissance. Yeah. You know? Well, I think most of us are afraid of what that change is going to look like. It's terrifying, really. Yeah. If we think it's of our kids and in the world we're living, you know, leaving them with, uh, I really hope that people can start being smarter and kinder to one another and, and more understanding. For me, this kind of ties back to our discussion about technology. Mm -hmm. My love hate relationship with technology. I have three teenage daughters and seeing how they're exposed to the world uh, and all of it. I mean, the internet is basically a microcosm of the world. Um, and it's a lot easier to protect your kids from going to a place where they're going to experience things that you don't want them to experience than it is to protect them from experiencing things that I want to experience when it's all at their fingertips mm -hmm. and you can't guard them from it day and night. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why living off the grid is so popular now. Yeah is because it's basically the only way <laughs> to uh, protect your kids uh, from their minds becoming poisoned with things that they're not really ready to 
to see. Um, so that's a big part of the love-hate relationship with technology. Sure, that's understandable. Yeah. yeah. So how well do schools prepare kids for the real world? The real world has gotten, again, through technology, the, the exposure that kids have to way more than kids used to have. Um, I don't think the schools can necessarily prepare kids for the real world anymore. And I certainly don't think the curriculum we've been using for 100 plus years is capable of doing that. I don't want to say that you know our curriculum hasn't evolved or that the capabilities of schools haven't evolved, but but schools have to do a lot that they shouldn't have to do. Right. In dealing with you know the social, mental, emotional health, um, and uh, often really unrealistic expectations of parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really feel for teachers. Oh yeah. Who have to deal with a much more complex set of issues uh, in kids these days while trying to be true to their mission of teaching our kids. So I think I think that on the whole, our teachers are doing their best yeah. to prepare our kids for the real world. But there are so many factors out of their control that conspire against that mission. Mm-hmm. Their hands are tied in many ways. They can't teach to their best abilities. That's true. Um, and the standardization of things is not the way that people learn best. It's it's a testing system that an open dialogue can be more effective than than a yeah. standardized test. But absolutely, that's a it's a tough system. It is. It was built for the industrial revolution mm-hmm. uh, for you know, to train yeah. workers to work in factories. Right. So, right. Um, and it's kind of ironic, isn't it, that. Um, kids who want to pursue vocations mm-hmm. um, have to go through feeling like they're less than, right? Uh, because they're not pursuing or gravitating toward the academic, right? Yeah, it's it's tricky. Yeah, it is tricky. But thank you for that. Sure. For the insights there. Um, can you tell us about your current projects and where you would like to focus your energy over the next few years? I am definitely all about growing rock voices. Yeah. Um, it's. <laughs> it's my current project. It's my future project. Um, I am so amazed by the healing that happens when you're making music in community with people who uh, are just there to do exactly what you're there to do, um, to just to you know find some joy, yeah, have some fun, yeah. Um, I thought that I was doing this as a healing measure for myself. And it immediately became obvious to me, the first rehearsal, how much bigger than me this thing is. Yeah. Because there are people who are broken in so many different ways and in so many ways that people have in common with other people in the group. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a story in, in the Lake Oswego Review about us and the reporter entitled it The Sounds of Joy. Nice. And uh, it's this the joy and the complexity of the connections between people and the types of joy and the types of healing that people are experiencing. Um, it's just blowing me away. It's, it's totally transformative to it's a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So I want to grow it. You know? That's cool. Um, we might have over 100 singers in our next season or two, and that's awesome. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if we get to the point 
know, if we keep advertising the way we have been and the word of mouth gets out and our 600 concert attendees uh, talk to talk to their friends about it, um, it wouldn't surprise me if we need to split into two choirs. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm up for it. I'm interested in, you know, having rehearsal on two nights a week and having two concerts every season. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely my, my creative focus. Excellent. What other artists and musicians, photographers, creative people would you recommend checking out? I've experienced so many different um, types of, of music. Um, I don't follow um, very religiously um, uh, visual artists. I don't know many. I can't really speak intelligently about recommended you know, photographers, painters, playwrights, uh, theater productions, etc., and my musical tastes have been so varied um, that I, I would have to think quite a bit about what's influenced me most. And as I mentioned, I spent like 20 years in the Christian music arena. Right. So I know there are Christian artists that uh, I've already mentioned. There's Stephen Curtis Chapman, Michael Libby Smith, Jars of Clay. Um, there's a, there was a band called PFR that had a big influence on me. Um, yeah, lots and lots. Um, as far as mainstream artists, um, the police were huge for me. Uh, Billy Joel, Elton John. I was really into a little uh, electronic British duo called Yaz for a little while. Um, Naked Eyes, you know, just some of these uh, these eighties pop acts. Um, you know, lots of lots of big artists. Um, man, Michael Jackson. That Thriller album, I really hate knowing how yeah. twisted he was and the things that he did uh, in Neverland. Um, a lot of people don't even want to listen to his music anymore. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen the documentary yet. I haven't either. Um, kind of breaks my heart a little. It totally yeah. breaks my heart, too. Absolutely. Um, so much good music and so, so significantly tainted. Yeah. It's really difficult. Yeah. I try to separate the music from the person at this point. He was really talented, though. Um, Undeniably. If you listen to the Off the Wall album yeah. uh, and, and the raw tracks that they recorded in their, just their, you know, living room or whatever. Yeah. I mean, the the energy was just the same as the, the studio production, you yep. know, with three teenagers in their living room, you know. It's incredible. I listened to Quincy Jones talk about how blown away he was when he heard some of the Thriller tracks. Yeah. Um, you know, it, yeah. Undeniable yeah. talent and, and mastery. Yeah. Genius. But the reality's out there, and era, the, the truth is out there about mm-hmm. the other stuff now. And Certainly don't want to make any excuses, but no. people are broken. Yeah. Um, some people are broken in big, sick, illegal ways, um, and it's hard to... It's hard to separate the person from the music. Um, and when, when you think about the masters of old, you know, who knows Who knows what kind of well, sick and twisted stuff there, Mozart was into. Or, there you know. is. Yeah, there is a lot of that. And some of it's, you know, obviously like embellished in the, in the movies and stuff like that. But we, we don't know. But I know that there's a lot of uh, soap opera type uh, music history things as well. <laughs> yeah. People throwing themselves off of bridges and all mm. that kind of stuff. Yeah. from uh, Because... Uh, they couldn't reach, you know, more than an octave with their left hand. <laughs> oh my so, gosh. yeah, it just <laughs> the the music comes from humans. Yeah, it's true. And uh, yeah, 
good and bad. Yep. So what are one or two memorable stories from your music career so far? Well, I can tell you some of my personal memories. Um, my college choir uh, was performing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and just hearing the voices around me singing the Ode to Joy with an orchestra, um, that was one of the most moving moments for me. There are a few you know, classical pieces mm-hmm. that um, are amongst my favorite. There's an Ave Maria mm-hmm. by Franz Bibel. Okay, um, different one. Yeah, and there's a recording. I think it's by Chanticleer. Um, that just, I, I, get, I go to tears every time I hear it. It's amazing. I was on top of the world when we were doing um, some Take Six music. Take Six is acapella sextet. Um, when we were doing the acapellas back in college, um, I was the high, high guy. Oh, okay. So we did this song called Getaway Jordan, and it ends with a trill. I, I think it was an A flat, B flat, um, above the staff. Wow. Yeah, and I, I used to be able to sing So a whole there. step trail back and forth like <laughs> <Yeah>. that? Wow. <laughs> Way above the staff. Um, that was a huge thrill for me. I guess it's it's just a memory of b- doing that on stage and watching people's eyes pop. That was fun. <laughs> um, my most significant recent musical memory is definitely our first Rock Voices concert. Yeah. We had 32 singers and probably a couple hundred people in the audience. And um, just the... The power of the joy and the fun in that room, um, <laughs> it really, uh, I'll never forget that. You know, it was the beginning of Rock Voices Portland, and it was so intoxicating just to feel the fun and the joy coming back at us from the audience, and to see the smiles of the people who had never done this before standing there uh, in front of me trying to sing all the memorized lyrics for an entire program. The band, you know, playing with a rock band. Uh, it's just, um, it's it's a powerful, indelible memory yeah. <laughs> that I'll always have. That's amazing. Yeah. And you'll be doing more of it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> for years to come, I hope. <laughs> that's great. And uh, so May 5th is the next one, right? Yep, okay. that's right. Four that's o'clock on May 5th. At the Lake Oswego High School Auditorium. All right. Uh, What would be your advice to 16-year-old Mark if he would listen? 16-year-old Mark. So 16-year-old Mark was kind of intoxicated on love. Okay. I never drank, so it's not that kind of intoxication. But um, my wife and I met when I was 16 and she was 20. That's a big age difference for that age. It is. Now it's no big deal. Um, but, <laughs> oh man, I was so on cloud nine, I'm pretty sure 16-year-old Mark wouldn't have listened. <laughs> if I had something to tell him, uh, it would probably be go back to piano lessons. <laughs> probably uh, go to music school. Um this this is strange. I started out my college career at the University of Hartford uh, in West Hartford, Connecticut, and the Hart School of Music is there. Uh, great music school. Yeah. Um, and I had 
practical considerations in my mind, and I selected mass communication as my major. Mm. So <laughs> for my time at Heart Music, uh, I was just kind of dabbling. I wasn't majoring in music at that point, and this incredible music school was like right there at my fingertips, and it was just kind of extracurricular for me. And then uh, <clears throat> once I realized that I did want to major in music, um, I went to uh, the University of Massachusetts. And, you know, they have a good music department, but it's not a, a dedicated, prestigious music school. Uh, so I, I wish uh, 16-year-old Mark had had it in his head that he's going to major in music and he's going to go to a great music school. Um, looking back, no, no regrets, really. Right. Because I'm really happy the way things turned out. Yeah. And uh, the most difficult thing in my life wouldn't have changed based on anything that I could have told 16-year-old Mark. Fair enough. <laughs> Don't yeah. get a brain tumor, Mark. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. <laughs> no, it sure doesn't. Yeah. That's when we uh, negate the don't anyways, right? So a lot of mm -hmm. people do that. Mm -hmm. Yep. How do musicians and creative artists keep from being obscure or obsolete? I think authenticity is the answer to that. Okay. Um, I mean... So much there's so much focus on being relevant, and I kind of think if you're pursuing being relevant and sacrificing authenticity, that's not that's not going to be a rewarding path for anyone, um, except perhaps on a financial level. If you're pursuing authenticity so that you can remain profitable, <laughs> you know that's that's not a winning combination. So avoiding obsolescence. Um, to me is probably more about finding your audience or finding your people, um, finding a way for what you do to touch the people that it has the potential to touch. Um, you become obsolete when what you're doing has no impact. And if all you want to do is, you know, impact yourself, impact. then fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think it's a matter of, of searching and finding the right forum to share your creativity. Um, otherwise, you know, obsolescence is a, is a big risk. How do people get known basically? Right. Um, or at least be able to survive if with their art in a yeah. way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I really think it's about being able to thrive somewhere while being authentic. Uh huh. Um, if you have to, if you have to fake it or do what's popular, in order to be viable, then you know that's a sacrifice that many creative people have to make, and they do. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, it, lots of musicians who have their profitable set um, <laughs> also have songs that aren't going to be popular, but are a lot more meaningful and impactful to them. Mm -hmm. You know, like here's what I really want to play. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, it's sad, but it's just the way of the world. Maybe it could be changed by the educational system and the priority we place on the creative arts uh, among among kids uh, to create the audience of the future. You know, I mean, if everybody graduated from high school with a thirst to find the creative content that really feeds their soul, right. um, then I think there would be a lot more souls to feed for everybody who's creating creative content. True. Um, you know, that that's an idealist kind yeah, of, it kind is. of look. But that's okay. Sometimes if, if, we have to start with that, you know, and then it morphs into what it what it's going to be. 
Yeah, if John Lennon had written Imagine about how the music biz could be and should be, you know, it would probably go something along the lines of what I just explained. <laughs> probably. Uh, you've somewhat answered this. Uh, how important do you feel music and the arts are to society? Yeah, um, I think music and the arts are critical to society because of the, cap- the capacity um, that they have to help people connect with the most meaningful part of themselves. Um, you know, there are lots of different types of personalities out there and there, I'm sure there are people who wouldn't connect with their deepest meaning and passion and soul, uh, because of music. But I know for a fact that music has so much potential, um, to enrich the inner life, um, and the, the joy of community, um, for individuals that uh, it's undeniable. I think it's undeniable. What skills are important for everyone to learn? Oh my gosh. That's a huge question. It is. <laughs> what skills are important for everyone to learn? Yeah. So what if uh, you th- think of one of your children, like let's say you want to prepare them for life. Yeah. What skills are important for them to learn? I think it's important to be able to communicate with people effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's important to be authentic to learn to be with others, you know, to, to cope, um, to be kind, uh, to seek peace and harmony. I know that, uh, the strife that comes from, you know, disagreements and struggles with others, uh, it's not something you can avoid in life. Um, but if you know who you are and what you stand for, what you believe in, and you've grown up surrounded by kindness and you respect and value kindness, uh, and you know what it is to experience love and to help others experience love, uh, I think life is going to be a lot richer for you and for those around you. So at the... At the most fundamental level, I think those are the skills everybody should learn. Nice. That's good. How can music and art help people, and have you seen an impact? Any examples? I know you've already given some, but... uh... Yeah. um, When I think about how music and art can impact people and help them, um, definitely the example that's right in my face is just that healing that I talked about, um, bringing together people around... Anything that is positive uh, is going to be impactful for those people. Um, But joining voices together has a power that I think is unique. You know, it's it's your voice. It's part of your body. It's part of you. It's something you use all the time. And to be able to join it with the voices of others, it's a very intimate thing. And... To do it in a setting that is supportive and joyful um, is very, very powerful, I think, for for helping people get to a place where they feel validated and worthy and like they're a part of something bigger than themselves. And to be using your voice, that intimate part of yourself, to do it, um, I've just witnessed all my life the power of that. And now... Um, being in charge of something where people come and from all walks of life 
and seeing that power manifest in a way that, you know, I'm responsible for. Like, it's my job to stand up there in front of this group and help that connection happen. And there's a rewarding energy um, and transformation that happens um, during that process that's way beyond my real comprehension. Um, But seeing it happen, making it happen, being a part of what is really a very significant and gigantic force in these people's lives is just as significant and gigantic in my life. It's uh, it's really mind-boggling. Yeah. And it's a very special thing to be a part of. Definitely. Well, it's good that you acknowledge that, but it's also good that you're able to sort of lead that and bring people, you know, kind of to that place. It's one of the most rewarding things I've had happen in my life so far. Yeah. I believe it. I believe it. I can see it, too. Is there a way that we as artists can work together, help one another, and maintain our creativity and our own vision for our journey? I think no matter what kind of artist you are, what you're pursuing, what your objectives are, you're a part of a community that needs to exist and function and be vital in order to feed humanity what it deserves. Um, The joy of experiencing beauty, whether it's beauty that comes from pain or sadness or beauty that comes from elation or love. Um, I think that as artists, we all have a responsibility to respect all artists. Um, And even if you don't respect what they're producing, you know, the, the obstacle to that is being able to respect the person who's making the art. And that kind of goes back to the Michael Jackson conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, it's very, very difficult to separate the person from the art they produce. Um, but if the art has merit, and that's a whole other conversation, <laughs> <laughs> um, if, it, if it moves you in some way, um, I think the power that comes from the notes or the rhythm or the tones or the color of the paint or the experience of the audience in the theater. Um, the power that comes from those things is undeniable no matter who it comes from. So it deserves its own respect. And I've gone way off that's, in my no, mind. No, that's okay. That's, <laughs> I think that was pretty well put. Um, well, Mark, are there any questions I should have asked you that I have not? Hmm. And anything that you would like to just kind of leave the audience with? Yeah, I think the only other thing I feel compelled to say, Danny, is thank you. And that um, I, by doing this sort of thing with your podcast, um, you're uh, kind of adding a thread to the fabric of the arts, of creativity and of encouraging people, we all can learn so much from others. Yeah. And any way that people can bring the knowledge and experience of others to a larger audience, uh, I think should be respected and appreciated and applauded. So I'm glad you're doing this. Thank you. And thank you so much for your time and for your work with Portland Rock Voices. And I wish you great continued success with your, uh, 
with your music and with your family and with your life. So thanks, Mark. Thanks a lot, Danny. Find out more at artmedianorthwest.com. A-R-T-M-E-D-I-A-N-W dot com. Mm-hmm.